0: Three hundred and sixty-six of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe & Johnson. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. Uh, The views we're about to express do not reflect those of the firm, its clients, our institutions, our families, our friends, our pets, and they most certainly do not reflect the views of Tim Cook at Apple because Apple has... Failed to Distribute, our last episode, 365, is available everywhere but on iTunes. So if you are an Apple user, this is the message. It's time to go out and get yourself a real podcast aggregator instead of relying on iTunes, and then you can get episode 365 and future episodes. Maybe they'll fix it, but we've been waiting a week and they haven't, so I thought I'd let you know. But we're going to be doing a news roundup today. We're going to have Jane Bambauer back uh, for, I think, the second time. She teaches law at the University of Arizona. Jane, good to have you. Nice to be here. All right. And Nick Weaver, who teaches uh, computer science uh, at Berkeley. Uh, Nick, great to have you. Thank you. And Paul Rosenswag, the founder of Rose- Red Branch Consulting and a regular as well. Paul, great to have you back. Great to
1: be back, Stuart. My sources tell me that your podcast is available in China but not in the United States.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, uh, only because that uh, the uh, Chinese Communist Party wants to keep track of what I say. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS and the host and chief provocateur of today's program for as long as Tim Cooks lets me stay. Okay, I, look, I, this was a pretty good week for the good guys. Uh, they did two uh, technically difficult Thai criminal activities, both having started and run for uh, years a, uh, an encrypted chat platform, and then seizing cryptocurrency right out of the blockchain. I, uh, so why don't we start with the encrypted chat platform? Nick, uh, what did the FBI manage to do there?
2: Oh, this is such a brilliant story. So first of all, some background If you or I want to do a secure communication channel, we just say, get iPhones, install signal, call it good. Criminals don't work that way. Criminals are a prestige business. And so they've traditionally spent thousands of dollars on dedicated cryptographically protected handsets operated by companies that basically tell pen register orders to go F themselves. Now, a couple of years ago, the FBI shut down the biggest one of these at the time, Phantom Secure. And they were selling hardened Android devices that only communicate to other Phantom Secure things, blah, blah, blah. And they and the Australian police recognized a opportunity. Normally, they try to break into these systems, flip insiders, etc., and go from there. And they go, let's just skip all the hard work. Let's just build our own and start to sell it. And so they sold it starting in Australia through an influencer network of criminals and they called it ANOM, A-N-0-M. Now this is the type of thing that nobody who isn't a criminal wants to use because it only talks to a limited subset of people, very small circle, deliberately biased on the security, and it took off. And so criminals around the globe were using this. and. The FBI did a nice job on the coding. They added a nice little extra feature that would take every encrypted message, send a copy of it encrypted with a different key to a third party country. This third party country's intelligence service or law enforcement would decrypt the messages. If they were not messages involving known US persons, they would forward it to the FBI And the FBI would read everything and then tell everybody who needs to be said. And if they were U.S. persons, the third-party country or somebody else would read the messages. And if it's life property or life risk type stuff, only then would they tell the FBI. And they kept this up for a couple years, including massive luck in terms of, say, finding a cocaine being shipped in French diplomatic cocaine being shipped in cans of tuna, and a whole bunch of other things. And the worldwide police were getting very lucky at busting these drug dealers for some reason. And they just announced this and shut it down, probably because a combination. Their third-party partner, their, their legal process was expiring and the bad guys were undoubtedly starting to get suspicious about their bad luck and all it would have taken is one professional reverse engineer to and, and there was a blog post. The party.
0: There was a blog post that said this the security on this device sucks you should buy my stuff instead and so some people are attributing some of the unease to to that blog, blog post i'm not sure whether that's true
2: yeah but these guys always diss each other so that's just the standard waggling of body. Body parts.
0: So the legal issues here are actually surprisingly difficult. You think, oh, this is just great. We'll just listen to everything. But because of the way it was structured, I'm not sure they could have done that. And they certainly didn't do that. Jane, uh, I, can you give us some sense of the legal issues that were floating around as the FBI and the Australian police were running this uh, scam?
3: Yeah, well, so, so that's, I am... It kind of blows my mind, even though this is the right outcome in terms of what the FBI did and managed to achieve. The the there's no legal precedent that makes really unambiguously clear what they needed to do. So, so you're the FBI. You're running an undercover end-to-end encryption service, but that's an electronic communication service, which means presumably that federal laws like ECPA FISA to some extent would apply. And then, of course, not to mention whatever Fourth Amendment protections might be there. So the it, it could be that the reason that the U.S. had everything routed to a third country and had that third-party country read the clear text and only forward what was criminally relevant was their interpretation of what they needed to do under the law. But it doesn't... It doesn't strike me that's unambiguously the case because the entire operation seems to me to be state action. I want to know what your opinion is. To the
0: government might not be U.S. state action. Oh,
3: I'm I'm claiming it would be U.S. state action. I mean, so maybe there's an open question there, but there's at least an argument that everything that was done, including by the other countries, would be part of the FBI uh, FBI directed mission. No,
0: Nick. Nick, do you you want to jump in?
2: I think they were slightly more clever than that. It's that all non-U.S. person stuff was decrypted at the third party and forwarded to the FBI. And only U.S. person stuff was firewalled off from the FBI. So I think their argument might even be, this is EO12333 territory. This is non-U.S. persons outside the U.S. communicating amongst themselves, anything goes.
0: I think that's probably true, and I think that, I, but I I suspect that what they tried to do was to have a bit of an arm's length relationship to the the system and maybe even the government agency running the system, and ask them to act as though they were just Google or Apple or somebody else, which means that they can't volunteer to provide information except in the in circumstances where life and limb is at risk which is seems to be what they did and it may well be. that's what the the statements have that, that have come out are they, they say we're we're just a commercial provider and if we see evidence that uh, a crime is underway that endangers somebody's life we can tell law enforcement that's a clear exception in the stored communications act or and otherwise you've got to give us a subpoena or a wiretap application which wouldn't really or, be hard
2: or it's non us persons overseas oh, really? oh, right so
3: so I, I think we're all in agreement that for non us persons overseas there's no prob- there's no issue here but my my curiosity is with respect to communications that originate or are directed to U.S. persons and the ability for the FBI to claim that they have this ironclad kind of system where the third-party operator is independent enough that they are more or less just like Google and only providing information when there's life or limb at risk. That So, so I think there are two possible issues. One is that maybe more messages were provided than just the ones that... that clearly implicated a situation where someone, where where there was imminent danger. But the second bigger issue is that it's possible that all of the decryption, all of it was done by yes a third party but one that is in in di- direct I'm speculating here but we don't know the facts going going into this but it's possible that everything that they did was in in cooperation with a scheme that was that originated from or was substantially directed by the FBI so that even the decryption itself could be seen as part of u.s state action but you know i want to mention one other thing that made me laugh out loud when i was reading about the story which is that in the process of running this sting operation they learned that the criminal organizations had complaints about the phones and they started making better devices. <laughs> I and love it. Our communication service could be that sensitive to <laughs> consumer
0: needs. That's what should have made them suspicious. Right? Uh, they should. They should have said, "Yeah, Apple doesn't even return my calls. Why? Uh, how come these guys are being so good about it?" Uh, yeah. I, well, the, the, that's
2: why you're paying two grand for a phone. Well, that
0: for, yes, I love the idea that they basically said, "This is a really expensive phone," and then and and. We're only going to let you in if you're vouched for by another criminal, I, uh, which, of course, is probable cause by itself, Jane, I think, to conclude that you can you could get a wiretap order. You said, well, these are all people who've been vetted by their federal, fellow
3: criminals. OK, so I'm so glad you say that, because even if it's all state action, which are, I think at least there's a decent argument that it is. Well, I would then subsequently argue that they could decrypt everything anyway. They didn't need to use this third-party country because I agree with you that the probable cause, the idea that only criminals are going to want to pay this much money for very low-functioning phones, I buy that. I think that's right. So I I wonder if it's almost too little or too much in terms of the structure here. (laughs) So
0: I think we're going to... I I agree with you that this is not... Uh, falling off a log easy to, to fit within our legal framework. And the FBI and the Justice Department are going to have to defend what they did here. But I, I think our, I don't our, think they do. Really? Here's the They've reason got to why. they prosecute somebody.
2: No, the thing is, is they- don't need to prosecute anybody in the U.S. because these things were not really used in the U.S. They deliberately marketed them in Europe and in Australia and in South America and the like. So basically, according to the public statements, there were like half a a dozen or two dozen U.S. selectors that were being ignored by this third-party country. So they basically made sure to just firewall things off so that this is the FBI helping out everybody else.
0: All right, okay. And those few U.S. phone numbers are all calling in from Guantanamo right now, so we don't have a problem. (laughs)
2: I'll make you a
1: bet. There's a sealed FISO or Title III warrant application and order somewhere behind all of this well-
3: i think so. i think that's right but then why have a third-party country that's oh well because, <laughs> well because with the need for
1: for fighting you know as nick pointed yeah. out we can be good guys but you know
3: and minimize i mean i think there is something too to the idea of minimizing the information that the fbi has direct access to so
2: also, this, would, this structure would make it trivially legal under 702, that you do a FISA order for under 702. The third-party country is the third-party information service provider.
0: Yep. So I'm, I'm guessing if this goes to court, we, have, we lawyers have this saying that hard cases make bad law. But I think it's also true that cases that make you laugh out loud make for good law for the Justice Department. And this clearly did. All right. Well, so, uh, while we're laughing out loud, uh, how about getting back two and a half million dollars in cryptocurrency from the guys who took out the uh, colonial pipeline? Paul, That that's a more, mis- it's, it's at least as mysterious what the Justice Department did, and at least as exciting that they were able to do it.
1: I, I think it's both. Let's start with the Exciting part portion of it. People who use Bitcoin or who are Bitcoin advocates, or, and when I say Bitcoin, I mean most cryptocurrencies, um, have touted its anonymity as one of the highest values it brings. Those of us who follow the tech at all know that it has been pseudonymous and you can fuzz the identity quite a bit and make it difficult to trace. But We've always known theoretically that difficult does not equate to impossible. And what the U.S. government demonstrated quite clearly yesterday or last week is that that if the stakes are high enough, they can track the Bitcoin as it moves through the Bitcoin network from address to address. Depending upon how you count it, because there were some split transactions, I counted on the warrant At least five and possibly as many as seven different hops of the Bitcoin back and forth between various wallets. So all of that will give a lot of pause to people who, for mixtures of ideological reasons ranging from supporting anonymous activity in China to wanting to keep our own espionage safe to wanting to enable criminals, have touted the anonymity of Bitcoin. That's the exciting and fun part. Sub note, by the way, before I go to the mystery, that even though they recovered 69 out of 75 Bitcoins, the price had dropped so extremely that they only recovered 2.3 million out of 4.4 million of that had been sent because Bitcoin fluctuates so much. But that's a why is Bitcoin a commodity, not a currency question. But the mystery is this, notwithstanding having traced all of it, to get access to it, you still needed to have the private key to the Bitcoin wallet in question. And all we get from the warrant application is, quote, the private key to the final Bitcoin resting place where we will find this money is in the possession of the Northern District of California. The the
0: FBI, right? I I remember. uh, Right. Basically the FBI, but in the possession of the Northern District of California. And, and, so and I, I mean, think the choice of the present tense was deliberate. They're not yes. telling us when it came into their possession uh, or, how. or how they got it. Yeah, because they want people to sweat bullets over whether they can do it again.
1: So, So choices here range across the panoply of all of the intelligence and information collecting opportunities you might imagine ranging from a human intelligence source inside Darkseid who gave it up, all the way to I fancifully heard that the harm from Darkseid on Colonia was so great that Putin himself said, give them back the money and, and sent us back the private key. I doubt both of those. Uh, I tend to think it was more kind of some sig-inty kind of leakage, possibly in the chat discussions of the Darksiders, or possibly through sitting, getting lucky and sitting on some Tor network exit point? Who knows? What I really enjoy the most is that in the chat logs behind all of this, all of the cryptocurrency brothers are going absolutely crazy trying to figure out what was happening and how they lost the, the wallet. The only other hint that I have for you is that the FBI has said that whatever its methodology is, it is reproducible and scalable. Now, I'm guessing that they're lying to scare people (laughs) or trolling people, but imagine that it's true, then that means that the FBI has a reproducible method of unearthing private key bitcoins, which, you know, are, as I understand, generally quite cryptographically hard proof. And so, I mean, one of the real fears of some of the crypto people is that the FBI has cracked SHA-256. That that did not happen. I'm sure it's not true, but, you know, something's happening here and it's a lot of fun. So, so bottom line is three things. One, Bitcoin isn't anonymous. Two, Bitcoin's value fluctuates immensely. And three, somewhere along the way, at least once the FBI cracked
0: a private key. And if they can do Net, it, more, that's bad news. Nick, We're you want to wanna offer up. some technical uh, uh, highlights?
2: Five bucks says that if we ever find out how it is, it was the FBI or somebody else identifying and or hacking a server belonging to the affiliate. Because there's one really interesting thing about this payment is that it basically matches the amount of Bitcoin that the affiliate gets to keep rather right. than the initial ransom or the ransomware gang's share.
0: Yeah. So if, as some have speculated, it's just some kid who doesn't didn't know what he was doing, it would make sense that his OPSEC would not have been good enough to protect his private key.
1: One so that's possibility, a, that, well, yeah. one of the things this reminds me of is you remember that old XKCD cartoon where panel one is drats, he's got 256 SSA encryption, we'll never be able to get to it. And the second panel is, let's just beat him over the head with a wrench, and he'll give up the key. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. Okay, so let's move on. I, the Biden administration is beginning to patent this, this move. They threw out a Trump-era ban on TikTok, and then immediately reinstated what's likely to be a ban on TikTok and WeChat, but done with more interagency coordination and careful chin-stroking attention to detail. But it's quite possible that what we have is a a press release saying we got rid of that terrible orange man's policies, and then we reinstated the uh, orange man's policies, but with a Biden flavor. Paul, is that fair?
1: I think it's too kind to the orange man. For one thing, I don't know. I mean, for one thing, the the orange man's bans were under great legal pressure precisely because they were not done in any way that approached due process and thoughtfulness and all that. So, yeah, and, and that was true of much of what he did administratively in areas outside of cyber as well. It, it, it's a recurring theme. And so another way of saying this is correcting the procedural infelicities of the last administration that were probably going to be fatal in the end to that ban. and Pretty much had been that, already,
0: I mean, in
1: litigation. So they might have recovered, but rather than defend the procedurally indefensible, go back and do it the right way in the first instance. Uh, so that's the first point is it's it, it substantively you may be right, but procedurally you're way too kind to the prior administration, whose procedural missteps are a panoply across the administrative law area. Substantively, I think that you probably are overstating the likelihood that the end result from Biden is going to be exactly the same as Trump. It may be, but I think it's likely to be that Biden's likely to use the process of doing this to extract some concessions from Xi on some other area of concern. Yeah, we, he gave himself 120 and 180 days for the review. That will be plenty of time for discussion. My And at the end, fundamentally, uh, TikTok and WeChat were less of national security concerns than a lot of other Chinese activities, say Huawei, for example, in our, our hardware. So I think that in the end, it's probably going to come out somewhat differently than how the Trump administration played it out, and more importantly, whatever they said along
0: will, will withstand legal challenge this time around, my guess. Actually, this is much more likely to be more sweeping because it says, essentially, it took the objection to TikTok and WeChat, which is it's sending data to China about Americans, and generalized it. it said, go out and find everybody who's doing that and tell us whether we ought to ban them from our IT infrastructure. Now, maybe they won't have the nerve to do that, but I would not be surprised. I mean, the FBI and the Justice Department are really on a, a kick about protecting the data of America. i be in
1: love with you then, Stuart. He's got a bill to ban the overseas exportation of Americans' data. And it's got right. like one co-sponsor. Uh, you think Joe Biden is now a co-sponsor of the Biden legislation? I mean, the Biden legislation? I think
0: this could happen. I, I, I think that uh, th- there is real unease. I mean, CFIUS is constantly telling people, no, you can't do this transaction without guaranteeing that you won't be sending uh, data of Americans abroad. Now they've been handed a tool that allows them to institute that policy without waiting for a Civious transaction uh, uh, which was always a little bit kind of piecemeal so yeah i think that they're going to they're going to look hard at this and actually i do believe that wechat will come in for more pressure than tiktok because wechat yes, is a much more for comprehensive sure. wechat uh, much document.
1: more Well, tiktok is it's not really that big a deal i mean it's a lot of data for the chinese ai to chew on but it's kids data and dancing cats yeah
0: So the one thing that worries me about the order is they gave a lot of reasons why you could restrict sales of Chinese apps. One of them was not content moderation by the Chinese Communist Party. But I think that's a very serious problem. I think the Chinese have been working us through social media already and will continue to do that. And to the extent that they can suppress stories they don't like and heighten stories they do like that will affect our behavior, they're going to do it and they're going to use things like, like WeChat to achieve those goals. So we should be worried about that. All right. So there was an interesting and... Pretty thoughtful, and I think completely wrongheaded, a report from the Business Software Alliance about how to deal with the risk of bias in artificial intelligence. And I've got an idea what they're doing there, but Jane, why don't you tell us what the report says and is trying to get the government to do?
3: Yeah, well, so the BSA, Software Alliance, they're anticipating that, seeing that the EU has already passed its guide or provided guidelines on how AI is is supposed to operate with significant restrictions, including humans in the loop, on the loop, and and in every way embedded embedded with the loop, uh, as well as other sort of process requirements. So, So the BSA is trying to stem some of the demand for similar proposals in the US by providing the structure for a bill that would require some amount of process in order for AI to be developed thoughtfully and responsibly with an emphasis on impact assessments. Now, my, the issue I have with not just the report, but, but the, the sort of eagerness to regulate in this space more generally, is that they are very, the proposals are quite light on the substance of what it is that we want in terms of AI fairness and much more heavy on process. And the reason I find that troubling is that it covers up what I think is some deep tensions that are not easily going to be, that are not easily going to be reconciled for what types of fairness should be prioritized. So at this point, the the scholars in this area are well aware that they are competing, multiple definitions for what it means for AI to be fair, that they are mutually exclusive, that they are often competing. And one version of fairness will sometimes be in support of another version and then at other times be in competition. And so even if everyone agrees that we want AI to be accountable, what, we, what it is we want it to be accountable for or to is still very much up in the air.
0: If I could just, Put a yeah. finer point on that. I mean, one definition of fairness is Martin Luther King's, I want to be judged by the content of my character and not the color of my skin. I colorblind use other factors, fairness. And the other is no, we have to have proportional representation of every disfavored, historically disfavored group in the country. And until we have achieved proportionate representation in whatever good is being passed out, there's a bias. And th- those two are fundamentally opposed, and they're part of a a, a very significant debate we're having uh, as a country right now. And I think to bury all that in the decision about what it means to have bias in AI is basically trying to resolve that debate without having it.
3: Exactly. I couldn't agree with you more. In fact, in fact the, the fundamental debate that you just described uh, is easiest to see in the context of risk recidiv- or recidivism risk scores. So this is the That the A well they call it AI. It's really actually small data algorithms. (laughs) It's just a little algorithm using not much data that predicts who's likely to be a threat if they are released before their trial, before a criminal trial, and and the phenomenon that you describe is 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 all over this problem that that if you prefer to have the scores mean the same thing regardless of race you will wind up with more false positives like falsely believing that a black arrestee is likely to commit a crime than you will with the white with white arrestees we can fix that we know how to fix that but then we wind up with this Strange, at least maybe temporary, maybe long-term uh, scenario where whites are scored differently from black arrestees, and there's no obvious right answer there. And pretending that there is does not do uh, justice to this idea of what it, of, of a responsible algorithm or AM. yeah.
0: And while they, I think the BSA report tries to avoid, they don't want to be part of a debate about racial justice in the United States, but at the end of the day, the procedures they set up force everybody who's accused of AI bias to go through this process uh, and then to fix whatever bias they find, whatever unfairness they find using whatever definition they uh, choose. And the entire process is, I I, I won't say rigged, but it, it bends you toward proportional representation, because you have to have diversity of groups making a decision about whether this is fair. Many of the groups are going to opt for proportional representation. That's better for the people they represent. And it's going to be very hard. It would really require an act of superhuman ethical courage to say, I'm not going to do that because I think it's wrong. And so everybody's going to end up adopting proportional representation or something like it, uh, and then jiggering their AI to achieve that result, and then not telling anybody. Uh, That's my guess.
3: I, I think that would be the likely outcome in a lot of cases, but I'm not sure that there's even a stable, that at least represents a stable equilibrium, not one that either of us would necessarily think is best in all cases. But I'm not sure that we would even end, wind up there because if you fix, let's take the example of the recidivism risk. So if you fix proportional representation with respect to the arrestees, you wind up changing the cha- you wind up changing the chance that a, a a member of the black community might be victimized, right? So then if we start focusing on Uh, proportional representation of the risk to community members, we see a new form of bias. And so I'm not even sure that there's a stable place where this could land. I
0: I think that you might be right, because it it is possible, it's always possible to find some kind of bias in the real world. Uh, Why is it that so many hotel owners in the South are named Patel? That can't be, that's got to be some kind of inequity, but it's real life. And when you find those, if you have to describe them as, unfairness and fix them, you're always going to be doing this. Plus, there's a little brief mention in here about what you might call intersectional interference, which means that you not only have to have proportional representation of women and blacks and the people who are transgender, but you have to make sure that you've got transgender black women properly represented it's going to be it is going to be a mess and all that the bsa wants to do is have it to be somebody else's mess please don't blame us
3: <laughs> and can i give one one my my sort of stereotypical spin on this too is that the bias the ai bias debates really discount too much i think the value that accuracy and much more data can play in removing bias and removing a lot of the tension that we're describing and so there's this there's another unspoken tension which is between the privacy advocates pre- preferred policy solutions and those who want to prioritize making a system with as little bias as possible, but that too is rarely discussed openly, that that it may be that if we really, if our top priority is is removing the chance of unintended biased, biased distribution of errors, for example, then what we really should want is much more access to data. Well, I will uh,
0: move us along by just uh, once again appealing to listeners to adopt my view that a lot of this is looking at the algorithm as though it were a person and saying, well, since you can't explain why you achieve this discriminatory result, we're going to attribute it to bias, when in fact it's just the algorithm reflecting real life back at us. And I call that not just anthropomorphism as to the algorithm, but misanthropomorphism, a a determination to see the worst in this anthropomorphic uh, uh, construct that you've created. And that's why it has such appeal and hopefully once it's been dissected, we'll have less appeal. Nick, do you wanna jump in? Okay. All right, uh, the, the other AI activity was that there's a task force that's been launched to study opening up government data for AI research I, and, and I'm not always uh, negative. Jane, I don't see a reason why this isn't a good idea, but maybe the privacy people have a different view.
3: Yeah, so I think that's the big question. So I, I yeah, it's a lo- very laudable goal to open access to government held data and they do hold a lot. But, and so I'm glad in that sense that this task force has been launched. I suspect though, that they're going to be mired in uh, contra- controversy or just very difficult decision-making you know, on a practical level, because even the announcements claim that what, what they're trying to do is make anonymous data available to researchers, and that word, anonymous, <laughs> that oh, yeah. <laughs> so I don't know if you've been paying attention to what's going on with the Census Bureau, but there, the state of Alabama has already launched, a has already filed a claim against the Census Bureau for implementing differential privacy in a way that really messes up data accuracy. And so if, if we can't even get this is for decennial census just counts number of people living in a certain certain census block if even that cannot get done in a way that keep makes you know privacy advocates and researchers happy I, I'm not sure that that this task force is going to have much luck either
0: yeah I, I sort of like just because I think it's cool technology, differential privacy, but it's not perfect. It, it You do sacrifice some uh, uh, accuracy and it's probably easily caricatured. So I don't know which of those things is going on in this lawsuit. It's possible. If I were from Alabama, I wouldn't give a lot of uh, credit to the U.S. government's good faith. So maybe they've just misunderstood mm. it, but I'm guessing. No, uh, no.
3: I think the problem, so I don't like differential privacy and I'm on the record and, and my problem with it is I, I think it's slick, but the trouble is it defines privacy in a way that is so abstract and, and, or rather it's by design It's meant to define privacy according to a super user who has access to all information except that one last little bit. So from from an encryption kind of angle, that sounds great. But in terms of data usability and real world risk, that's not, I don't think, the best way to define even what the goal of privacy would be.
0: And you may be right that, of course... It means that when you have just that database, you can't be absolutely sure that you've identified all the ca- characteristics of a particular person. But if you have access to other forms of data, that differential privacy is not going to uh, be particularly uh, effective. Uh, so, yes, there's lot. there are problems with it. All right. Speaking of problems, uh, Brian Krebs had a delightful discussion of what it takes to, call, to get in touch with the FSB to ask them whether they are distributing malware when they distribute their encrypted chat to, uh, a system for talking to the FSB. Nick, I, it was a lot of fun to read. So what's the, the short version?
2: The short version is Russian federal encryption has to use standard encryptions that your web browser doesn't support. So you have to download from the SFB an unencrypted message in unencrypted binary, making it easy for the say NSA to substitute it with their own version, right. in order to set up an encrypted channel back to them. It's, it's just so amusing. It is
0: nuts. It's there's no security in it. The idea that you you can only talk to them using HTTP and not HTTPS sounds like they. To just don't care. They assume people are going to, uh, the, the NSA is get, is sitting on their network. It's a very, it was a very uh, odd outcome uh, and made worse by the fact that they're using an encryption algorithm ghost that triggers a large number of malware uh, signatures among the anti-malware software. So it is, it, you just wonder what they were thinking when they decided to do that. And maybe the answer is
2: they weren't. Well, let's face it. It's the SFB or FSB. They already know what you want to say. If they want to talk to you, you will help. know it too. Exactly.
0: Yeah, your computer will start talking to you uh, in the middle of the night. All right. So, Jane, I saw Bruce Schneier had a piece on information flows and fostering democracy. And I I like Bruce. His politics are not mine. But this particular paper, which he did with Henry Farrell, is a kind of a remarkable piece of filter bubbling in which he says, oh, yeah, if a democracy is going down the tubes and it's all the Republicans' fault. We need to prosecute them for saying saying false things. I, and that only makes sense to somebody who has never left the New York Times op-ed page.
3: <laughs> OK, yeah. So uh, that was going to be one of my major criticisms, too, is that I thought the entire piece, it, the, the piece was quite thoughtful i recommend that people read it because it digests a lot of the literature on sort of information flows and beliefs and that i'm familiar with and that seems it seems to re- reflect it well except for <laughs> the description of the problem of de- degrading trust in political institutions being exclusively a conservative problem so Uh, So to their credit, they do mention that on the left, there is a faction that's starting to believe that their opponents are crazy and irrational and that that is one of the three, that's one of the three identified ways in which democracy can become degraded. And so they do recognize that this, that what they're looking at the, the how information flows affect beliefs and then how that subsequently affects democracy they they see a role for the left in it but but it's highly critical of the dysfunction on the conservative side and in a way that i thought really missed some of the stories that happened before January 6th right so so it's true that it's true that Right now, a large chunk of Republicans think that there was voter fraud or even rigged election, that the 2020 ele- election was rigged in some way. But the Russia investigation following 2016 was described in the op-eds in the New York Times, to go back to your comment, Stuart, in a way that suggested that if it weren't for Russian meddling, we would have a different outcome. And that, I think, is an example of a, a degraded, de- degradation of of trust in our institutions coming from the left another example i i think would be stacy abrams comments after she lost the gubernatorial race where she said she that she <laughs> said well because of voter suppression yeah. supposedly so so this is to, to me it actually looks like a lot of probably fairly typical partisan complaining that that especially before the bizarre, weird, basically we had several decades where American politics were bizarrely serene and we're probably going back to an era where politics is dirty again. And that's not good, but I'm not sure that it's as one-sided in terms of the causes as Bruce suggested Is So yeah, and
0: and that actually, that uh, Paul, I'm going mo- is- to move this along. I'm going
1: to be serious in equating the two. Yes, it's, it is. I'm not clear. equating
3: the two. It's clear
1: that the Democrats have in the past cast doubt upon the elections. There was obviously, there was a, at least one instance in which they voted. One senator sought not, Barbara Boxer sought not to certify the votes from Ohio. But that's nothing in comparison to the wholesale assault on the legitimacy of the elections that has been undertaken by the Republican Party almost exclusively since November of 2020.
3: So so I agree there's no parity right now. If you look right now, the right wing is in an information ecosystem that is diff- is quanti- qualitatively different from the rest of the world. But I disagree that there's that the threat is only on the right side because I think that the left might be in the tea party stage of a really similar transition.
0: I'm just gonna call this and we're gonna probably pull it back to the disagreement rather than trying to let everybody uh, get their last response because I think that the last story is one that demonstrates the... Divide and maybe the filter bubbles that are in operation. Nick, I, the story is that the Trump administration, Trump Justice Department, did a lot of intelligence collection and served a bunch of subpoenas uh, and orders to get access to records that included the records of several Democrats on the House Intelligence Committee, Doug McGahn, McGahn, uh, and that is turning into a fight over whether that was A partisan abuse of the Justice Department or not, and uh, the Democrats are convinced it was, the Republicans are not. What more do we know about exactly what the Justice Department was doing and what it was trying to do?
2: Well, the one to really watch on some of this is Marcy Wheeler. She's been paying attention and she's really good at reading between the lines. So among the readings between the lines, (laughs) that it probably wasn't targeted at Adam Schiff, but there were a couple of staffers under investigation at the time, one of who was actually convicted for lying to the FBI. And there were a couple of truly frighteningly serious leaks, the FISA page one in particular. Anybody who cares about civil liberties finds that leak horribly disturbing and worthy of investigation. And so we had that going on at the time. The Don McGann subpoena was probably for something completely different. Who knows what that was about? But he was involved in some shady campaign finance stuff. It's called being involved in campaign finance. And the real interesting things are, though, is Adam Schiff, this is just metadata. You said we shouldn't worry about stuff like this. Oh,
0: okay. So you're going to hoist him on his own petard for having supported metadata access.
2: And, more importantly, this is something really worth investigating. And I wonder if Adam Schiff knows anybody who, like, is chair of a congressional committee that would have subpoena power to investigate this? But, I find... It might look a
0: little self-interested. Sort of sort of like yeah, uh, no. having the Trump administration investigate leaks that, that hurt them. Yeah, I would advocate fashion. for you Schiff to do be this. this guy, right? Because he's got self-interest. Yeah. But I agree with
1: Nick that it's, yeah, worth investigating.
0: We know that there's going to be an investigation uh, by the, uh, the Justice Department. Uh, their independent investigator is going to look at it. He lacks authority, the subpoena authority and authority over anybody who doesn't work for the Justice Department. So it may not be a complete investigation. But given that what everybody's objecting to are Justice Department subpoenas, we might get most of the story out of that.
2: Yeah, and I think we will. It's, I just get annoyed. Yeah, the Intelligence Committee shouldn't be the one investigating this. This is the different committee's role. But he knows friends on other committees that really should be looking into this if there is something there. But there's no evidence of that yet, especially given the context and also the general FBI strategy. If you are investigating person X, you want to do two-hop type stuff on their metadata. And this is how you do it, is you get their likely contacts, and you send all of those selectors to everybody as a pile of 50-odd-plus phone numbers, and it turns out that one of the phone numbers is Adam Schiff. Yeah, that's.
0: I think a, a big chunk of this is just the FBI not even knowing who it is and saying whose IP address belonged to because they were in communication with somebody we are investigating. And that's that could turn out to be a big chunk of this. But I'm going to make a pitch for a bigger policy issue. I, what's ironic here is that some of this was an investigation of a partisan misuse of the intelligence community assets through the leaking of FISA transcripts. So this was already a partisan abuse. It happened to be that it was almost certainly a Democrat who leaked the uh, Flynn data, and it was being investigated by Republicans, and now they're accused of politicization. They're going to be investigated by Democrats, and they'll, the Democrats will be accused of politicization. We need to come up with procedures that we have a little more confidence in than the current ones for investigations that have both a national security and a partisan element to them, because they're going to be a constant feature of the the next 20 years. Nick?
2: I would just uh, push back on the assumption that the Flynn leak was by a Democrat, that Flynn's behavior was frightening to anybody in the intelligence community, Democrat or Republican. And uh, no,
0: I don't think so. I, uh, the actual transcript Secret was in the-
2: meetings with the Russian ambassador he and then lying phone about phone. it I'm to sorry. the FBI. Sorry,
0: okay. So I'm sorry that what was disclosed there was a the kind of conversation that the Biden people had every afternoon for- a month before they took power i uh, and it shouldn't have frightened a lot of people the and the number of republicans who had access to that to those transcripts was Pretty limited. Remember, the, the Obama administration was in power when the leak occurred. So I, I think when you ask who, cui bono, or uh, who had the most access, it's the odds favor a Democratic uh, use of that leak. But I, I don't know for sure. It should have been investigated. They should have caught the person. They didn't. But it has truly affected the ability of Pfizer to be used in contexts where we really need it to be used. Okay, uh, well, that was, a, that was a very fun episode. Paul, do you have anything you want to say to take us out of this?
1: Nah, I think it was fun. I tend to think that, this, that the shift thing will be a nothing burger in the end.
0: Could be. Yeah. It cannot be a nothing burger because the New York Times re- re- records were uh, subpoenaed, and it's never a nothing burger when the New York Times interests are affected.
1: Together, we, we didn't talk about the the ju- journalists. Maybe next week we can do that. But Those are a much different case than okay. the shift being caught in the
3: web. All right,
2: and also those tend to involve uh, leaks that were not quite the oh my god of the FISA. And Carter Page leaks, but probably much more Mueller type leaks and stuff like that, which is a totally different kettle of fish to investigate.
0: Okay. Uh, Although some might say a slow-moving version of January 6th, but with Democrats in charge of it. So thanks to Nick. Thanks to uh, Jane. Thanks to Paul for joining us. And before closing, I just want to urge people to send angry emails disagreeing with at least one of us, and maybe all of us, uh, to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Please leave a rating for the show and... uh, and, uh, Go get an a podcast aggregator other than iTunes because I don't know when it's coming back. They're, they're completely redoing their platform and uh, I have no confidence in their technical capability in this room. Free- so get yourself a new aggregator so that you can listen to this every week. Uh, thanks also to the sound- Weissman Sound Design for the music. This has been episode 366 of the Cyberlaw Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson.